If you have a Bible this morning and you want to read along with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to begin our reading in verse 9 and read down to verse 21. And I've really wrestled this week with this chapter and the chapters preceding it. Um, so dense with content, so rich with truth. Um, and we're just going to get to one small thought of all these things that are contained here. I certainly wish that I could understand everything here, but um, I'm certain that I don't to the extent that it is. But we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, and read to verse 21. And as we go through it, I want you to pay particular attention to verses 14 and 15 as we read. It says this, Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend on ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your, for your cause." For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we no man, excuse me, Know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now to conclude our reading this morning. And we're going to perhaps highlight a few verses in this scripture that we read to you, though we will not get to all of it. The title of our message this morning, based on this series of scriptures, is The High Cost and Rich Reward of Sacrifice. The High Cost and Rich Reward of Sacrifice. Um, Kind of struggled this week um, 
feel like I have a thousand thoughts running through my mind and there's not a straight line to express it. And so you pray for me this morning that the Lord would just get out as jumbled as it may seem in my head to your heart what he would want to be said. Um, I want to share an experience to begin this text in my own life that um, was triggered this week. The memory was triggered this week. Um, When I was 17, I was um, very different than I am now, I guess. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But um, to give you a little insight to where my 17-year-old heart and mind was, um, I was a ABC student. Uh, I was um, lazy. I was aloof a lot of times from responsibility, avoidant of responsibility. Um, I avoided responsibility in part for fear, fear of failing. I sought after um, I sought after approval from people very passionately. That's kind of what fueled a lot of things was I wanted people to say, "Look at that, look at him." And um, I regret those those days very much. Um, when I was 17 in August. Of that year, um, I got called into the ministry, and there was a series of things that happened after I got called to the ministry that were, again, provoked this week that were rather life-changing. One of the things, and I want to highlight perhaps one verse in this text before we continue the story, Paul says in verse 9, our first verse that we read for you, wherefore we labor... Or another way to put it is, therefore, this is our ambition. That whether present or absent, so whether I'm dead or alive, based upon what he's already spoken in the text, that we may be accepted of him. Or the word accepted means pleasing to him. So Paul is saying, this is our ambition. Whether I'm alive or I'm dead, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. And I tell you this story in part because at 17, I was looking for my life's ambition. And there are some things I'll say this morning that you could pick apart, and I'm not going to get into the weeds trying to explain the details of them. And so please be gracious as you listen, because I know I'm not covering everything. But in one sense... There are two paths that we can take in life. One involves accumulation, acclamation, or being acclaimed, or experience. I want to just have fun experiences in life, good experiences in life. I want to achieve, or I want to accumulate stuff. It's one path. Um... Another path is one of sacrifice. 
two paths we can take. And at 17, I didn't, would not have been able to have divided it that way, but I very strongly felt at a fork in the road. And for whatever reason, perhaps personality, perhaps values that I was taught, there was a clarity in my mind that you can't pick both. It's one or the other. At 17, I had never read a book, like a real book. Uh, maybe Dr. Seuss, but nothing beyond, much beyond that. And um, somebody handed me a book and said, uh, I think you should read this. And so I agreed to, and it was about 450-page book. And um, for whatever reason at the time, that didn't seem too daunting to me, and I don't know why, because normally it would have. And I began to read through this book about a missionary named Adoniram Judson. Obviously, you know our oldest son is named after him and his wife's last name. And as I was reading this book... um, it began to do something in my heart. And I didn't realize at the time the significance that it would have in my heart. And this week, um, I found a book, and I'll recommend it to everyone. It's called Ann Judson, A Missionary Life for Burma. And um, it's a newer publication. It's about his wife, Ann And I read this book in about two and a half days this week, which is pretty unusual because I usually don't have the time to read that much. Um, And it provoked some very powerful memories. Um, And I want to share, as I'm trying to, some of those. As I was reading this book, um, what this man's life detailed was an ambition to serve the Lord regardless of the cost. And as I was reading that, um, there were numerous points where even a 17-year-old, arrogant, very blinded young man, it's like the Lord opened my heart just so powerfully to the point where it seemed like the only rational choice is a life of sacrifice. Um, This man and his wife, I want to read an excerpt to you. He had just gotten called to be a missionary to Burma in the early 1800s. And um, he was going to leave and probably never come back because that was the nature of travel at that time. And he met this young lady and wanted to ask her to marry him. And so he wrote a letter to her father asking permission to marry him. I want you fathers to imagine receiving this letter from the potential suitor of your daughter. Here's what a portion of it says. I now have to ask 
whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from the heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Powerful to me. Um, Powerful because of how much that I love my children. How much effort has gone into protecting them from any harm. Providing for them so that they have no want and loss. And as I was reading this this week... It prompted some very powerful reminders about the scriptures and the truth and what God may require of us, and that is sacrifice. Four years after I read this book, I was teaching at a, an inner city school. I was not happy when I got placed there because it was a pretty rough school, but I now see it was one of the greatest blessings of my entire life. Um, I went and I taught at this school, and I've shared this once before here, and there was a very high population of Burmese children that were there. And through my nine or 12 weeks of student teaching, I was just in awe of their behavior and their piety. Um, We would go on a field trip, and two Burmese kids would sit next to one another, and they would have a Bible open on a field trip, reading together, talking about it. When they finished a test early, they would submit their test, go back to their desk, get in their book bag of Bible, open it up, and read it. That wasn't all of them, but it was certainly the majority of them by a long shot. And I walked in one day at the end of my student teaching. It was probably a week before I was done, and I was making copies in the teacher's room. And um, as I was making copies, I, I got all my copies, and I started to leave. And there was a Burmese young lady that walked in. And she was about 20 or 21 years old. And uh, she was also a student teacher. She was just beginning as I was just ending my student teaching. And I thought for a moment, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask her. I tend to be more of an introvert in situations like that. But for whatever reason, I felt compelled to just ask her if she had ever heard of Adoniram Judson. So to this complete stranger, I, I asked her. I said, I have a quick question for you. Have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? And uh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget what she said. 
And I can still imagine, in my mind I can see so clearly her facial expression. Um, She was busy doing things. When I talked to her, when I said that name, she paused and her face lit up. And she said, He's the person who brought the light of the glorious gospel to my people. And I was just floored and overwhelmed because this man, his body was so broken and beaten through the course of this. He had to say goodbye to his family to which he never saw again, his wife, or excuse me, his, his father and his mother, his brother, his sister. When he left the American shores, he never saw him again. When he first got to India, which was close to Burma, um, they wouldn't let him get there. They wouldn't let him go to Burma, and he had all this anxiety about, well, then where should we go? We set out on this missionary journey, and at the time, he was a congregationalist, and he had Spent all this time raising support. And there are all these naysayers that said, why are we sending so much money overseas when there's a need for the gospel here? And nobody had ever gone overseas as a missionary. And so he had to convince everyone and finally stirred up the support. And he's on the ship on the way over, having gained all this financial support to be the first missionary. And as he's reading the Bible and he's studying the original Greek, he recognizes that the Congregationalist church got baptism wrong. And so he can no longer be a Congregationalist. He's got to convert to being a Baptist. And he's overwhelmed and he's terrified because he doesn't know if he's going to get any support from the Baptists. And nobody knows him there. And his family grew up. His father was a congregationalist minister. And he had all this anxiety. And yet he continued to pursue what he was supposed to. And then he gets to India and they tell him, listen, that's a, a heathen culture. They're Buddhist. They're tyrants. You're likely to show up and they're just going to kill you just for being a foreigner. But God compels them to go. Or as our text says in verse 14, the love of Christ constrains him. He has no choice but to go. And he steps in there and they don't have all these technologies to learn language. And he's married and his wife had a childhood friend. I can't remember her first name, but her last name was Newell. And... Upon getting there, shortly thereafter, her friend gets a tropical disease and dies. So now she's alone, completely alone. No female companions. Her husband's the only one there. And uh, they just set to work. We've got to learn the language. That's the only reason, the only way that we can reach these people. So for 12 hours a day, Locked themselves in a little hut, no air conditioning, no clean water, nobody to communicate with that knows their language. They just set after to learn the language. Not too long after that, they have a a son named Roger. And Roger grows to be about eight months old, and she thinks that he's teething. That's why he has a fever only to learn three days later that he dies. And um, she writes a letter to her mother after that Roger died. You see, three days earlier she had written a letter 
reveling in the joy that he brought and telling her mother all about him. And then three days later, death visits. And here's just a little subsection of this letter. Little did I think when I wrote you last that my next letter would be filled with the melancholy subject of which I must now write. Death, regardless of our lonely situation, has entered our dwelling and made one of the happiest families wretched. Our little Roger Williams, our only little darling boy, was three days ago laid in the silent grave. Eight months we enjoyed the precious little gift, in which time he had so completely entwined himself around his parents' hearts that his existence seemed necessary to their own. But God has taught us by afflictions what we would not learn by mercies, that our hearts are his exclusive property, and whatever rival intrudes, he will tear it away. And so she records, and Adoniram records that as best they could, they placed that behind them and continued to labor for the Lord in Burma. Part of her letter to her mother says that at no point have we doubted that God cared about us. But how profound that when we go through tragedy and loss, To a much lesser degree than what she experienced and they experienced, are we not prone to question God's reasonings, to weigh the cost of sacrifice that God is requiring to us, and comparing that to some other man or woman that they knew that he went to seminary with that now was pastoring some big church in Boston, accompanied with all the pleasures and leisures that the American life had to offer? No, they didn't go there. They stayed faithful, even in thought, to what God called them to do. Two hundred years after they went through that, I'm not done. Then, the, there's, there's an occasion, I didn't intend to go this far into it, but I just feel like I need to this morning, bear with me. There was an occasion when he had to leave for a couple of months on a ship to a different part of the country for an opportunity that came up. And she was very ill, so she had to stay behind. And he left to a little town called Chittagong. And as he was attempting to get there, the wind blew him off course. She only got word from somebody that the ship had never reached its destination. I believe it was either seven or nine months she was subject to just silence. Didn't know if he died. Didn't know anything. And I think about, even on his end, both of their ends, the anxiety that would be provoked within you to the point where she was contemplating taking the year and a half journey back home to America. A year and a half on a boat to get back. And imagine getting back and getting a letter saying your husband was okay, he was still there. And imagine the decision that you have to make. Do I go or do I stay? What do I do? Because now I'm alone, completely alone. 
through the hands of providence, she gets on a boat and begins to leave, and the boat is delayed, and the day that it's supposed to take off, her husband shows up. England and Burma got into a war, and every foreigner was looked at as a spy. So he had spent 12 years translating the Bible into the Burmese language. And now it was on the brink of being destroyed. His wife, her health is declining rapidly. So they take him into this prison for nine months and they torture him for nine months. She has to come every day, feed him, bribe the, the, um, the guards just to let her in. She has to walk two miles every day in the tropic when she's already sick. After nine months of time, God delivers him. They have another little child, little Maria. After the birth of the child and because of the difficulty in her providing for her husband, Anne's health deteriorates to the point that she dies. A few weeks later, after she dies, little Maria dies. And there he is in Burma. At this point, there's been 18 people saved. And I don't know about you, but when I consider the cost, looking from a human perspective, not from an accurate perspective, from a selfish human perspective, would not the questions arise in your heart, was it worth it? Eventually he gets married again to another missionary on the field. Her husband had died. Sarah Boardman was her name. She dies. And all the children that he had with her dies. And as I'm explaining this, it seems like if you put a scale out there between the benefits or the rewards... And the cost, it seems very clear. But that's where the rest of the story comes in. He eventually obviously dies. In older age, he gets married a third time. His wife dies two years after he does at the age of 39, in part because of her experience in Burma. Um. 200 years later, a nobody is at a nowhere school and asks about his life. And one of those descendants from one of those heathens, that's what they were called at the time, says, he's how the light of the glorious gospel got to me. 200 years later. As I was reading that this week and as I was meditating and I was praying, the Lord revealed to me perhaps something that I was not as attuned with about that experience. 
That altered the course of my life. That alone altered the course of my life. Because as I stood at this fork in the road at 17, then again at 20, 21 years old, and the appeal of everything the world has to offer. Now I want to say this for a moment. The cost, when we weigh the cost of sacrifice, it's often easier to do so because you can calculate it. Like what I just described to you in his life, I could say he lost two wives. He lost countless children. He lost friends. He lost, he lost. And I can list all the imprisonments and deprivations that he had. And I can quantify that. And I can tell you this morning all the things that are lost. And as we or you young person, as you stand at the fork in your own road and you look ahead at your life and all the opportunities that might present themselves to you may abound beyond comprehension. And you can calculate those things. You can say, if I get this job and I get this degree and I choose this path, here are the benefits that will be attached to my life. Because those benefits are visible. They're ascertained not by faith, but by sight. And people can count and calculate your treasures and your experiences Those are all discernible to the carnal mind. And so whether it be the lost person or the carnal Christian, when contemplating whether which road we should take and whether sacrifices should be made, very often what Satan will lean in towards us to do is to count the cost that would be implicit in a life of sacrifice without considering the opposite side. But listen, in every decision we make, there is not only a cost, but there's a reward. You see, here Paul has just informed us in the previous chapter of all the hardships that he's went through. He's went through imprisonments and beatings and deprivations. And then he begins to describe his own emotions that come along with it. And I think sometimes that is lost when we read the biblical narrative that it's not these events that took place, but implicit in those events of suffering are all the human emotions that come with it. The anxiety, the fear, the anger, the doubt, all of those things, those men, as the book of James tells us about Elijah, are subject to like passions just as we are. They experience those things. And at times I think Satan would have us to believe that those men and women aforetime have some supernatural capabilities to numb themselves to the real human experience and be super Christians. But listen, they were not. And that is what is half as powerful about those stories of the New Testament and the stories of church history is that those men and women were just like me and you. Anybody here a valedictorian at Brown University and Ivy League school? Adoniram Judson was. Anybody here do that at the age of 19? Adoniram Judson did. Anybody write a grammar book that was distributed all throughout New England as a bestseller and sold out from its first publication? At the ripe age of 19? You see, the aspirations and achievements and accolades 
probably far exceeds the potential of anybody in this room when you're talking natural capabilities. And yet the truth remains that all of those achievements and accolades truly are temporary. Listen, they didn't, and I want to say this this morning because I think people oftentimes will intentionally or unintentionally misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not saying go seek martyrdom because there's some inherent value in suffering. That's been something that religions, both in the Christian domain as well as outside the Christian domain, have at times propagated falsely. There is no inherent value in going and looking for pain and suffering. To say, woe is me, look at these things that I've had to endure. There's not value in that. And if God does not call us to a path like that, praise be to God that it's that way. But if he does, greater praise be unto God. That we would be counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Here's a point where he writes this widow woman after he had lost the death of Anne, his daughter, or excuse me, his wife. And he says to her, the bitter cup that you're drinking now, I have drunk to the very dregs. That bitter cup of death. And I will tell you, it's painful And it's bitter. But at the bottom, it's the sweetest cup you'll ever taste. When you consider where she is at, or in her case, where he is at. Where he is at. And what he experiences now. And that he is there all due to his service for the utmost God. You see, this morning, what was the compelling interest in them going there? Now listen, I'm going to say this. There are people that will ask sometimes. I've heard, I've heard it said numerous times. Why are we so focused on the other parts of the world when right here is needed? Right in Bowling Green. Here's what I'll say. I'm not going to argue that point. Other than to say, I want to be and go where God directs me. And if that's right here in the center of this town, then help me to set myself aflame or God to set me aflame with such a zeal that I would treat this place as though I was a missionary to the foremost country in the world in need. You see, location and calling and employment is not what's pivotal here. It's that a person's heart Is pursuing, and here's what the text said. This is what was motivating to Paul. For the love of Christ constrains me because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. What does that mean? He's saying if Jesus died for all people, which he explicitly says in his word, he did not die for a particular demographic, he did not die for a a supposed group of the elect. But rather, God died for all people. Every person you meet, Christ died for just as much he did the person that you love the most. All people are equally in need of Jesus Christ. And he says, I thus judge this, that if one died for all, then all people are dead. 
And because that he died for all, the reason that I'm going to do this, because he died for all people, they that live should not live unto themselves, but unto him that died and rose again. In other words, here's what it's saying. Christ saw our pitiful state. That every single person in the world was destined for eternal torments in hell. That was real. You were destined for hell until Jesus Christ intervened. Both generally in his life, but also specifically in your life, Christ intervened. And he saved you. And so the the author reasons this. If Christ was constrained by love to die for me, then what the love of Christ constraineth me to do is to live my life in order for those who do not know him. That I would not live it for myself, but I would live it for him who died and rose for me. And then later it tells us that he has given to us The ministry of reconciliation. So I'm going to live this life, not out of coercion, not out of guilt, but I'm going to allow love to compel me to decline all of the benefits this world has to offer and pursue a life sacrificing my own life for the welfare of those that are walking around dead. And it's love that compels me to do that. I don't think I can find it, but I'm going to try real quick. I can't find it. There's a part in this book where he talks about, or she talks about rather, all the loss being worth it if the Burmese people could come to know the Lord. All the loss would be worth it if here in Burma they could come to know the Lord. It's interesting up in Indianapolis. It's a really strange thing. Actually, I would say strange. It's unusual, I guess. There is now this huge section of the southern part of Indianapolis. I mean, huge section of Indianapolis that are almost exclusively Burmese people. And all over... There are Baptist churches, Chen Baptist churches, Burmese Baptist churches all over there. And it just amazes me. Because they are direct descendants of that man and that woman. So I I say to you today, it's a rich sacrifice or it's a hefty sacrifice. I say to you young person today who's on the the edge of saying, okay, what am I going to pursue in my life? And here's what I want to provoke you to consider. A life of sacrifice. Listen, I've weighed extensively and I've thought diligently for years about the cost. And I'm not going to lie to say this morning that there aren't times when your heart can become envious of what you lose and give up. Because the weak, unspiritual heart does at times. 
But this morning, one thing that has concerned me often about the Lord's churches is when we're looking at our young people as they grow, I want to ask this question and we look for them to aspire to do all these various professions and careers and go out and change the world and do these things. But let me ask you this. When was the last time that a church had a burden that their young people be employed in some spiritual capacity as their job in life? Where are the missionaries going to come from? Where's the next Adoniram Judson? Where are the next pastors going to come from? Where are the next people who go to foreign lands and establish orphanages for young children that they might by the hundreds spread the gospel day in and day out to the most beaten down and trodden down group of people in the world? Where are the people that go and say, you know what? My eye is focused on that. Where's the encouragement of parents saying, have you considered? Have you prayed about? And we'll support you fully in that endeavor. What higher, more noble endeavor could a person undergo than to give themselves fully to the cause of Jesus Christ? I want to read a couple verses of scripture to you, and then I'll be done this morning. Listen to this. We've talked about the sacrifice, the cost of the sacrifice. Now let's consider the rich reward for just a moment. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, one of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul is that he stacks adjectives like crazy when he doesn't know how to express himself. Okay? So it's like saying the biggest, grandest, bestest, right? That's what a kid does is they just keep building it up. And listen, what Paul does very often in the scriptures is he describes his persecution in a very minimal way. Notice what he said there. What was the description he used? For our light affliction. Light according to who? Not according to me. When I look at the things that he underwent, it is anything but light. It was tenuous and difficult and would leave you on the edge of just giving up. And yet he says there for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. So think of it like this. You and I can only ascertain by sight cost. That's all we can do is calculate that. You and I, through sight, cannot calculate reward. Because those things are understood only by faith. And they're only understood in part. Or in other words, remember when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount tells us, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So listen to me, when you go do something and it has an effect, a godly, spiritual, eternal effect, do you know it? I don't. Think of it in terms of currency. Do you know how much money that you have put back heavenly? I have no idea. You don't either. And there's no way that I can look at your actions or your words or the things that you have accomplished and quantify in any way what has been said in heaven from the works that you and I have done. But listen to me, they're there. They're there. 
And there's far more exceeding weight in a person who chooses a life of sacrifice for the glory of God to see the welfare at being constrained by love, to see the welfare of others and their eternal destiny than all the gold the world has to offer. And listen to me today, those are not just words, those are reality. That's real. I remember sitting one day at a friend's house. I don't want to tell you this morning, very anecdotal, but I want to tell you this. I was sitting at a friend's house. He built the house. He's a perfectionist, you know? Like everything in his house is just perfect. It was four or five acre property. It's all just pristine, just pristine perfect. It's really nice. Nothing problem with that. I don't have any problem with that. He was out and he was mowing and it had those, those stripes, you know? The ones that kind of intersect like that. And it just looks perfect. I remember as he was finishing up, I went and sat on their swing. I sat there and I was looking around. And the first time I contemplated, one day this house isn't going to be yours. It was just a strange thought. Like, every blade of grass is attended to. And yet one day, it's not going to be his. And it's not going to have any value to him. And that's not to diminish that. But it's to ask the open-ended question. Then what is an appropriate use of effort and time? If it is not to build the kingdom of God. I think today. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth is in no danger from the enemy at all. Just like you're not whenever God is protecting you. That's one thing that you know, Anne says in her book. She's going over this heathen land. She's on all this persecution. All these foreigners have been murdered. And she writes back to assure her parents, don't worry. They can't touch a hair on my head unless God wills it to be. So don't worry. It's a good reminder, isn't it, parents? The anxiety-ridden parent who's afraid to let the kid go is for me. Listen, nothing's going to happen to that child of yours unless God permits it to be. What a wonderful assurance. I want to read one other scripture this morning from the book of Romans. Very similar thought. It says this. Well, I thought I had it marked. Here's what it says. For I reckon reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. It's a mystery to me. But I'll tell you this. What I noticed about people who who pursue a life of sacrifice is that their eye in the horizon is always heaven. Here's what sometimes people will say. And I don't think I agree with it anymore. I don't know. But I don't think I agree with it anymore. Consider it for a moment. Well, I might, I'm, I'm ready to go, but I'm not ready to go. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm ready to go, but I, I want to stay here a little longer. And I've really thought about that a lot. And I've wondered if that second add-on is just because we don't understand what's to come. Because here was Paul's words. I'm ready to go. But I'm here for your sake. Get the difference? 
The only reason I'm here right now is because I'm useful as a life of sacrifice for the welfare of other people. But I'm really ready. I'm eager to go. Why? Because people who live a life of sacrifice always in the horizon of their mind is heaven. They glimpse it. Now let me ask you, how much do you think of heaven? I'm not talking about just an escape from pain. I'm talking about really grasping the glory and beauty and relief and joys that are unending in heaven. And how do people endure lives of sacrifice? It's because the knowledge, this is going to last for but a moment. All of this down here, all of this loss down here is going to last for a moment. And then suddenly, all of that will be forever forgotten. I don't know that we will forget our anguish on earth. I just don't think it will have the unpleasant tint that it does here. Because consider this. What if my labor down here and my pain down here, what if God shows me now, incomplete up in heaven... You will remember what you experienced down there. But in lieu of that, look what you gained because you endured it. Like, don't you think that that bitter cup would become more sweet? Don't you think you would recognize that if you took some medicine and it had a horrible flavor to it, but then you reveled in the health, don't you think you would look back to that moment where those procedures were being done, where that medicine would be taken and say, you know what? In the moment, it was an affliction. In the moment, I didn't care for it. But now that thought to me is so beautiful because it was the means of my salvation. And would not heaven be sweeter looking back and saying, yes, my life was afflicted like Job's, but look at what it provided me. Look at the enduring substance that will never fade away. I think you would look back and you would glory in tribulation, knowing what it has worked. I think, my opinion, I'm done this morning. I think we're going to have a recollection of a lot more on earth than we think. But our understanding of it will be altogether different because we'll have both sides of the story. We'll have the cost and then we'll have the exceeding great reward that is undeniably of greater weight than any cost that we ever paid. This morning, what's the end goal of the message today? I always think about that whenever I get done preaching. What do you need to walk away with? Be willing to make sacrifices for the cause of God. That's what I want you to take home. Give the money, you know. People are so afraid to talk about money in church. I I am too, okay. You can think I'm greedy. You can think I'm just after profiting. Uh, Okay, I'm not. That's all I can say. Give the money to the missionary. Help the person that you perceive is in need. Go on the mission trip when God calls you to. Speak to the downtrodden person when they're depressed. Reach out and care and exhortation and edification of your brothers and sisters when you see a need. 
Pursue in prayer the object of your life that God maybe for decades has been speaking to the back of your mind saying, you should do this, you should do this, you should consider this. And then all the cost comes out, all the possible risk comes out in your mind and you come up with every reason to set on the other side of the scale as to the cost it will be to you. But listen, if God is calling you to something, pursue it regardless of the sacrifice. There's a man. Heard a story. I'm done. I'm trying to finish, I promise. Brother Moran knows this person. Up in Detroit, Michigan, there's a man that got a burden. I'll get the time frame wrong, 50s and 60s. Got a burden to start a radio broadcast. Uncommon at the time. Unconventional to missionary Baptist people. Didn't do radio. Got a burden to do it. Whatever the period, the period of time was, he'd go and do this. Do this radio broadcast. Finally, a family showed up to church. From my recollection, and I could be corrected, from my recollection, absolutely no religious background whatsoever. Was just driving in the car, flipping stations. Heard this man preach. Interest was piqued. Think of all the risk and work it took to do that. People had to pay to get the preacher on the radio. Right? Preacher, instead of preaching three times a week, had to preach four times a week. Let me tell you, that's a job. Didn't know that it would yield anything. Had no assurances whatsoever. This family shows up. The mother gets saved. The children all get saved. And one of those women... A few weeks ago, sat in our church, listening to her son preach the gospel on a Sunday night. Husband, a deacon, had a good, sound church. Plucked from the fire, were they not? Course of history forever changed. Because just a few people followed the Lord. So, there's a strange attachment you have to people who play those roles in your life. I have one of those people. And it's so strange the attachment you have to those people. Because they've got all these flaws and imperfections. And you don't see it. What you see is one thing. I told you this story before. One time I was a little boy. I was probably seven, probably Emmett's age. Just as ornery and adventurous as he was, my friends would climb over this balcony ledge, lower themselves down, grab onto the pole, and slide down. So I thought I would do the same, be a fireman is what we called it, okay? So I climbed over this balcony, and what you had to do is you had to let go of the ledge for just a half second before you could grab the pole. Problem was, as I was letting go, my shirt got caught on a nail, And so I was just suspended, but it was to the point that my feet were out in front of me. The only way I could fall was backwards. So there I was, and I was just suspended. And I had a little six or seven-year-old friend. And he ran up to the third floor, and he banged on this stranger's door. And from my vantage point, all I can still remember is dangling there. And this, what looked to me at the time like this big man 
reached down and he grabbed my hand and he just pulled me up. He chided us and I just ran along like nothing happened. And what I still remember is just being terrified and the only thing I could see was the sky and the ledge. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a complete stranger saves me. This person in my life, it's what they did for me, but in a much more significant way, a spiritual way. They reached over by God's grace and saved my life. And I feel forever indebted. Is that not the most noble calling you could ever have in your life? Yeah, you don't have much. But you're just that person that's run around and reached over the ledge with as many people as you could get and pull them to safety. This morning, I implore you, young person, I'll give you the book if you want it. I bought a bunch of copies of it so you could have it. Take it, read it. And ask yourself this question. Is a life of accumulation anything comparable to a life of sacrifice?